The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. Two summers ago, when we were training together for an MBSR class in New York and Massachusetts, and um, you get to know somebody pretty intimately, traveling and uh, studying with them and talking. We were roommates uh, for ten days, and you get to know someone pretty intimately and and when um, Shelley asked me if I would introduce you, I wasn't planning on coming tonight, <laughs> but I heard that you were talking and I said I'd be delighted to. And uh, she sent me your biography and I was um, interested in hearing that you are now teaching um, a Sunday night class in northeast Minneapolis um, at 7.30 and it's, you can find out more about it at alexanderhaley.org. So that's really cool that you're doing that. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, I imagine it's very much a format like what we're experiencing tonight. And um, at the time that I met Alex two years ago, he was uh, in the midst of what's called CDL, which is Community Dharma Leaders Training, uh, which is a very, I think, prestigious um, trainer uh, institution for training uh, Dharma leaders throughout the United States, and they all gather at Spirit Rock in California. He, once he completed that training, which was when? This summer? Um, about a, I guess it was, no, it was fall ago, so maybe about a year, a little over a year ago. Okay. He completed that training, and it's my understanding, um, Alex didn't tell me this, I think I heard it otherwise, that the teachers of this program were so impressed with his talent and his potential and his uh, youthfulness that um, they invited him to be uh, a part of this train the teachers program which is for up and coming Dharma teachers throughout the United States uh, it's a four year program you get to study with some of the, the best most well known uh, Dharma teachers in the United States and that program just started this fall, is that correct? Uh, a year ago a year ago, all right, so you're in the second year already. So that's uh, quite an honor um, that Alex is in that program. That's for four years. And um, the last thing I wanted to say is that, um, and one of the reasons I'm delighted to be here tonight is that I really just admire Alex because he has done something which very few of us um, would dare to do, and that is that he left a very lucrative, um, promising career as a lawyer, and incidentally he also speaks fluent Chinese, so a fluent lawyer, corporate lawyer, who speaks Chinese, you can imagine where he could be, but instead he left that for, uh, for the great unknown, and for his passion, and for his love, which is... Um, Understanding and for and deepening his own practice. So, uh, with that, uh, welcome. Thank you. Um, so, can everyone hear me? Is the sound still okay? I just want to make sure that everyone. Okay. And if if my voice drops, if somebody maybe in the back would just go like that, that'll be my indication to speak up. Uh, every once in a while, it will uh, it will drop. Um, so it's just it's a real honor to be here. Um, I, uh, yeah, this is something that I love. So as Rob was sharing, this is a, a passion of mine. And um, I hope to be able to impart some of that uh, in tonight's talk. It's actually a, 
uh, tonight's topic is something that um, is something that brought a lot of joy to me when I was preparing the topic tonight, and uh, I'll explain why that is uh, as I'm going through it, and I just hope that it'll be of benefit. So that's really my my wish. Uh, for everyone here tonight. And also just to really emphasize that piece that I uh, shared at the beginning, uh, which is community. Uh, a big piece is, uh, it's uh, I'm sitting up here, but there is a depth of practice that is here in this room that uh, is uh, so beautiful, and it's such a rare gift to be in community. So uh, I'm really going to make the space uh, so that we can uh, learn from each other uh, and really have the benefit of being in community because it is such a precious gift. So um, I think I just those are just some opening remarks. And uh, Rob, thank you for uh, introducing me. Um, so the topic tonight uh, is cultivating uh, the seven factors uh, of awakening. And so some of you may have heard of these. Uh, others of you may have never heard of them, and this is the first time. So I'll kind of go through them and... What I want to do is uh, start first by just giving you uh, some context uh, as well as uh, exploring the lens uh, or lenses that I'm going to use to really go through this topic. So the context that um, I want to set is within uh, the Buddhist teachings, the very first thing is that uh, freedom or liberation or awakening or peace or the sure heart's release is another way that it's uh, sometimes talked about, that it's possible. So the Buddha said that uh, he would not teach uh, what, was, what was not possible. So he wouldn't have taught it if it wasn't possible. So that's the very first thing I want to set in terms of the context. Uh, the second thing that I, I just want to say is that um, there is a path. So there is a path that leads one towards awakening, towards the sure heart's release, towards that sense of opening or of liberation. And there are many words for it. There's, uh, the, you know, there's a whole list, actually. Um, I'm not going to go through it. But just in your mind's eye, whatever that is, whatever the largest goal is, that largest aspiration that you hold for your life, uh, that's what this is pointing at. And so uh, within the path, uh, the very first piece of it uh, is right view. And so I want to explain just for a moment uh, about right view. And I'm going to read a quote. Uh, this is uh, from the Majjhima Nikaya, which is uh, the middle-length discourses. So these are said to be, uh, as best as we know it, some of the original words of, uh, of the Buddha. And so this is what uh, he had to say. He said, Therein bhikkhus, and bhikkhus is just a word that means practitioner. Um, so it's, he's talking to practitioners. He says, therein, bhikkhus, right view comes first. And how does right view come first? In one of right view, wrong view is abolished. And the many evil, unwholesome states that originate with wrong view as condition are also abolished. And the many wholesome states that, origin, that originate with right view as condition come to fulfillment and development. So what is he saying with that? Quote, what he's really saying is that right view is this ability to discern what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. And that the movement towards wholesome is what then allows us to progress on the path towards awakening and liberation. So right view is really what sets in the motion that says, this is wholesome, 
that is unwholesome. And if I move in the direction of the wholesome, then there is an unfolding of the path that has an end. And its end is that sure heart's release. Um, so within the kind of categories of unwholesome and wholesome, and I'm just giving you a broad sketch here because these could be very long talks uh, on their own, but I just want to set the context. So within uh, the unwholesome category, there is said to be a particular set of capacities or mental factors which are really important for practitioners, and they're the ones that tend to block or obscure one's uh, spiritual progress or spiritual growth. And those five are the five hindrances. And so I'm sure many of you have uh, heard of the five hindrances, but there are those um, uh, factors or capacities of the mind that actually when they show up, they block or obstruct uh, our ability to, to clearly discern or to, uh, to actually see the wholesome versus the unwholesome. They're arising, their unwholesome nature is to cover up and to make it difficult, to confuse and to do many other things. And uh, I won't go into in depth into those five hindrances because, again, that's its own talk, but just to think of it that way. So there's these unwholesomes, the ones that are called out, given particular emphasis by the Buddha, are the five hindrances. And then within the category of the wholesome, those which are called out again and again in the suttas are the seven factors of awakening. So that's what I'm going to be talking about tonight. So really, what I find so fascinating about this is that it, it can tie back. So if you think of as the kind of the deepest aspiration of your life or what, whatever that spiritual uh, end is, whether it's the sure heart's release, liberation, peace, then you get to it by seeing, okay, there's a category that is unwholesome, there's a category that is wholesome, and within the unwholesome, there are five that I really need to watch out for, and within the wholesome, there are these seven, which if I actually spend some time to cultivate, are going to help me along that path or that journey. And so there's another quote that I just want to read, which explains the link between those unwholesome, those, those particular kind of nefarious five, if you will, and uh, these seven wholesome factors of awakening, which is what I'm going to be talking about. So, uh, whoever, whosoever has been liberated is now liberated or will be liberated from the world. All these will do so by removing the five hindrances that defile the mind and weaken understanding. By firmly establishing their minds in the four foundations of mindfulness, and by cultivating the seven factors of awakening. So there's your link. So he's saying, abandon the five hindrances, practice the four foundations of mindfulness, again, which is its own talk. Um, but uh, the end of it is the cultivating of the seven factors of awakening. And they're called the seven factors of awakening because their natural end is one's own awakening. It's as though you're coming out of a dream state. So uh, that's the context that I want to kind of set for tonight. And the last piece that I want to uh, just talk about before I go through what the seven factors uh, are in some detail is cultivation, this word cultivation. So uh, the original um, word uh, that is often used or translated uh, in the original Pali is bhavana. And so bhavana... Uh, is uh, is translated as this cultivation, and it's important, this word, because cultivation has this sense of um, 
uh, it's like you're cultivating a crop. So you're tilling the soil, you're planting a seed, you're caring for it, you're nourishing it, and then out of that something emerges. It actually grows and comes into fruition. And um, it's also important, this kind of metaphor, because if you think about a field, it doesn't matter how long the field has just been laying fallow. I mean, it can be unused for long periods of time, but then when it's cultivated, again, something can grow from it. So there's this beautiful uh, aspect of cultivation, which is that uh, it really is, we have this kind of um, sense of how we go about doing that in a very uh, direct way, as though we are almost farmers in our own mind, where we're cultivating crops, wholesome crops that bear fruit. Um, so that's the, the last piece I wanted to share, uh, kind of as, as background. And uh, the way, the lenses that I'm going to use to explore the awakening factors are, are two. So uh, there's a word in Pali called citta, which refers to both mind and heart. And so I'm going to want to talk about these qualities both from sort of this mind, uh, as we understand it in the West, which tends to be much more of that kind of reasoning through, logical, rational. And then I also want to invoke the heart qualities of these factors. So I'm going to go through both, and I'm going to use some poetry. I'm going to use a little bit of uh, different story and quotes to evoke the heart qualities for each of these different factors of awakening. So that's, that's kind of just the context. So I want to give you what the seven factors are so that you have them, and then I'm going to walk through them in some detail. So the seven factors are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and finally equanimity. So those are the seven. And that's when you first hear that, you can kind of go, that was a lot. You know, I'm not quite sure. Hopefully I'll repeat it at the end, so don't worry. And really the, the big takeaway here that I want you to have a sense of is that what I'm talking about is on this cultivation of the wholesome. So this whole talk, if you leave with nothing else, it's just the idea or the confidence that you have the ability to cultivate that which is wholesome. Uh, and that's no small thing. Uh, so I just, I'll, I'll say the seven again at the end, but let's go through the list. So the very first one, mindfulness. Um, I'm sure many of you have heard uh, you know, this term again and again. Uh, you, uh, there's a lot that's showing up right now in popular culture about mindfulness and what it is. Um, so when I talk about it first through the lens of kind of the, uh, the wisdom piece, I want to tell you about the function of mindfulness. So the function of mindfulness, and these are just some of the ones that I wrote down, and there are many, uh, it's this quality of awareness, this quality of presence, where you're actually there with the immediacy of something. Uh, you're meeting an experience right in the moment. So you're not somewhere else. You're just right there with it. And that's that, uh, that meeting it moment to moment. And in just kind of a very general sense, you're, you're knowing what's happening. That's the function of mindfulness. There's, there's this knowing quality that knows what is happening in any given moment. So what's the feel or the quality? This is kind of more of the heart aspect of mindfulness. And the feel or the quality of it uh, is really the sense of tenderness, sense of patience, uh, sense of um, non-judging, of acceptance. 
Um, I often use the word kindness. Uh, I'll, I'll say kind of a kind curiosity or a kind awareness. And that's really talking about this feeling or this uh, kind of heart quality that is uh, part of mindfulness. And it's not always emphasized, so I want to really bring that out. The other thing that I'll say about mindfulness is you can never have too much mindfulness. So it's one of these wonderful factors of mind where you know somebody will say, whoa, hey, you're being too mindful. Tone it down a little bit. You can't, do, you can't be too mindful. So it's a wonderful quality of mind. And uh, it's without end in terms of its ability to really cultivate it. Um, the other important piece about mindfulness is that it, it serves a, a role as a, as a kind of a, a monitoring agent, which it has the ability to, uh, to check out other capacities or factors that are operating in the mind. So it has this ability to actually help balance and bring into alignment or monitor what else might be happening uh, in the mind. Um, and so this is a really important quality, and I'm going to talk about it uh, as it relates to the other factors, the other six factors. Um, so the mindfulness itself sets in motion this whole process that I talked about, sort of the, you know, this uh, stream that leads to awakening. That's often um, one of the ways it's described is that these awakening factors are like leading like a stream. They kind of move in a direction. And mindfulness is what sets it in motion. <clears throat> so um, another aspect that I want to just talk about is that when we first encounter mindfulness... I think it's really easy to underappreciate it. Uh, there's a sense of, uh, okay, yeah, you know, I heard mindfulness. It's about kind of paying attention to the moment without judgment. That all makes sense to me. I get that. That doesn't seem really complicated. Um, but when you stay with it for a while, you actually start to get a sense of the real potency and power of mindfulness. Um, and there's, there's almost a mystery to it. And so one of the things that I, I like to mention is that, you know, when you look at um, uh, a young child, particularly babies, and you see how they are just there. They're there with their experience. It's like when we're born, we have this capacity to be right there. We're right there with what's happening. And yet as we grow up, we somehow tend to lose that and go, well, okay, yeah, but i got to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow or a month from now or a year from now or, man, I wish I didn't say that thing a week ago or, oh, that was a terrible month, you know. And we lose that staying with the immediacy of the moment. Um, and so one of the beautiful things about mindfulness is that when we encounter it again, it can re reawaken, uh, and I'm using that word intentionally, it really kind of reawakens something that we already know. We already have this intuitive sense of, because we were born with it. It was a capacity that we had. So I have a, a wonderful, in honor of that, uh, a wonderful book called The Little Prince. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. But for me, this is how one way of invoking that heart quality uh, about sort of the mystery, that reawakening the capacity, uh, and the power and potency of mindfulness. So I'm just going to read a very uh, short excerpt from this. And to give you the background for those of you that aren't familiar with it, uh, it starts out where the narrator uh, is, his plane has uh, kind of malfunctioned, and he's in the middle of nowhere in the Sahara Desert. And he starts the book first by talking about how when he was a young child, he liked to draw, 
but then every time he talked to adults, they didn't actually see what his drawing was. They misperceived it, and so then he gave up drawing, and he just went on and did other things like mathematics and became a, a pilot and did all these other things. And so that's just some of the context. So this is where he's describing being in the Sahara Desert with his plane is down. So this is the excerpt. The first night, then, I went to sleep on the sand, a thousand miles from any human habitation. I was more isolated than a shipwrecked sailor on a raft in the middle of the ocean. Thus, you can imagine my, my amazement at sunrise when I was awakened by an odd little voice. It said, If you please, draw me a sheep. What? Draw me a sheep. I jumped to my feet, completely thunderstruck. I, I blinked my eyes hard. I looked carefully all around me, and I saw a most extraordinary small person who stood there examining me with great seriousness. Here you may see the best portrait, and so he's got this little portrait of this prince sort of that's standing there, um, uh, that I was later able to make of him. But my drawing is certainly not very much less charming than its model. And then he ends with this... this uh, quote that I want to just read. When a mystery is too overpowering, one dare not disobey. Absurd as it might seem to me, a thousand miles from any human habitation and in danger of death, I took out of my pocket a sheet of paper and my fountain pen. But then I remembered how my studies had been concentrated on geography, history, arithmetic, and grammar. Uh, and I told the little chap, a little coarsely too, that I did not know how to draw. He answered me, that doesn't matter. Draw me a sheep. So, when we, this is going to sound a little odd, but I want to explain why I read that passage. So, when we encounter mindfulness, it's almost like, you know, somebody's saying, draw a sheep. And you're going, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. I'm in the middle of the desert. My plane is down. I need to fix this thing. And yet somebody's saying, draw me a sheep. With this very kind of serious, sincere, just wanting to say, please, draw me a sheep. And... What happens is that we can often just sort of let that, uh, you know, just let it pass and sort of say, okay, well, mindfulness, yeah, I get it. It's, you know, how is that going to help me feel more peaceful or more at ease in my life or anything else? But when we actually start to investigate it, when we start to draw a sheep, we start to see the mystery, the beauty. We start to see all of these things that open up. There's a potency in it. And so I just love uh, that passage where... You know, it sort of shocks you out of what you're, whatever it is that you were stuck in. And that's what mindfulness can do. It can bring you back. It can sort of reawaken this quality for the narrator who had stopped drawing when I think, I think he was six, is what he says in the book. And then he reawakens this when he has this odd encounter where somebody kind of reminds him uh, about this quality, about how it's important uh, to really be able to connect with something that can that we all have as a capacity, this ability to kind of uh, to open with a tenderness and a sense of awareness and really connecting in that moment. So here's this person that's saying, draw me a sheep. How do you relate to that? Um, so this is uh, a little bit about mindfulness, and there's a lot more that can be said, but I really just want to kind of hope that you get that, uh, that sense. It's this connection, but also this tenderness, okay? And that it's also a capacity that we have. And so really it's coming back to it or reawakening it or remembering it. So from mindfulness, what is the then next factor that is in the awakening sequence? And the next one is, it's called investigation. 
And so I want to talk a little bit about the function of investigation, and then I want to talk a little bit about, again, its heart quality, uh, kind of the feel of it. So the function of investigation is differentiation, it's uh, discernment, to distinguish, to disentangle, to not be caught up in something. So we start to see a larger context. Um, we start to see that we can have an experience that's right there in the moment. And we can have the mindfulness, but yet there are times when we get sucked into it. We get stuck again. It's a habit. It's uh, you know, some part of our personality where it's just it's really sticky. It's got a gravitational field that just pulls us in. Right? So investigation is this capacity of the mind to say, well, what, what, what is this actually? So this is like a thought, and I keep having it again and again, and what, well, so what is it? And then you start to look at the thought itself, and when you look at the thought, what you start to notice is that actually it's just sort of like this passing cloud that moves through your awareness, and it's only when you engage it, when you give it some energy, that all of a sudden it springs into this thing that kind of grabs hold of you, and you're kind of wrestling with it, and you get tired, and you're trying to you know, figure out some way out of it. But this quality of investigation is actually what allows us to kind of start to look at the context that's around it. So one way of phrasing this is we can start to notice sort of the space that is around whatever it is that is catching us, that is caught up. And so uh, actually in uh, the meditation that I was guiding you through, I wanted you to, I introduced this quality of investigation where I was asking you about, well, what is it? Where does the breath go? Where does the sensation go? And so you just start to say, well, that's interesting. I don't know. I've never really, have I looked to see? Like, I mean, and, and to know it from the inside, not a conceptual way, because the danger of this factor of mind or this capacity of investigation is to intellectualize. We can over-intellectualize. And that's not what this is about. This is actually about getting really close and starting to see larger context and also starting to see characteristics, that things arise, they exist, they pass, they're impersonal, they're cause and effect. There's all these things that operate, and that's what this quality of investigation is. It's a larger frame. That's what we're doing. So that's the quality, or the, sorry, the function of it. Now what about uh, the quality of it? So the quality or the feel of uh, investigation, and these are just uh, some of what I had, had written down. It's sort of like the wellspring of possibility. Because when we notice that there's actually some space, or we notice that there's a characteristic about this that isn't personal, or that is changing, it's not fixed, it's not stuck, it's not always going to be that way, then we start to have a sense of possibility, a sense of hope. Uh, there's a sense of, uh, of even uh, possibly empowerment, of not being caught up. And uh, there's a wonderful quote from uh, Tsokni Rinpoche, who is uh, in the Tibetan tradition, and he, just, he says, you can discover that an emotion or a thought is real, uh, but not necessarily true. So it exists in awareness. It, there it is. You're seeing that thought or emotion that's judgmental or negative or kind of demeaning, and yet, is it true? Is it actually true? And you can start to use this investigation factor to understand and break apart things, and it gives you a sense of freedom, a sense of possibility or hope. Um, there's uh, another piece um, about this, which is when you know that it's happening and you bring in that investigation, you can actually uh, 
start to feel the ouch of something, particularly if it's negative. You'll start to, when you investigate it, you'll go, oh, wow, there's a resonance that I feel in the heart. It's almost like I'm feeling the full ouch of that landing. Um, so investigation from that sort of uh, heart quality piece of it uh, is not only it's the possibility and the hope, but it can sometimes also be that ouch where we go, oh, wow, that's been there for a while and I didn't notice that. That, that actually is painful. So from investigation, when we start to actually bring in this quality of kind of looking at context, of discerning, of distinguishing, of unentangling, uh, we can move into the next factor, which is energy. And so energy, uh, the function of it uh, is really to maintain or to keep an existence through continuity. So it's this quality that allows us to actually continue to uh, to give life to something. You can think of it almost like a power plug. It's like you're plugging something in, and once you plug it in, it's feeding whatever it is that you've just plugged in. And so this is energy. And energy, um, as it's talked about in a very classical way, uh, is uh, there's these things called the four right efforts. And so these four right efforts is when you avoid those things that are unwholesome. If you know that something is unwholesome, then avoid it. You don't allow it to show up in the mind. So this is the first kind of uh, piece of, of the four right efforts. The other one is if there's something that is really unwholesome in the mind, then and it's there and you notice it, then allow it to let go of it. Just actually overcome it or you get rid of it. So that's actually getting rid of something that is arisen that's unwholesome. That's the second effort. The third effort is to arouse that which is wholesome. So arousing those qualities of heart and mind, which are actually wholesome, generosity, wisdom, compassion, all of these qualities that we can invoke that are actually wholesome. And then once they are arisen, once they're in the mind and the heart, then you can actually cultivate them. You actually give them some energy so that they stay there for a while and they can have their chance to actually grow. And so those are the four right efforts. That's kind of the classical way that um, it's talked about in terms of energy. And um, the feel of this uh, is, is pretty powerful. So I want to spend a little bit of time on this, which is uh, the feel of this can be courage. It can be uh, persistence, uh, wholehearted engagement. Uh, it can even be a sense of kind of the, uh, the heroic. It's almost the heroine or the hero that is really taking on this incredible quest or endeavor. And so there are two quotes that I want to read to you that are about this kind of quality, this heart quality of energy. And the first one um, is uh, actually um, an excerpt from a speech uh, that was um, done by uh, Malayla. I don't know how many people of you know the story of uh, Malayla. She was uh, the 16-year-old um, who was shot by the Taliban. And so she actually uh, wrote an address to the United Nations. I'm just going to read you an excerpt from this. I actually first heard this in another uh, teacher's talk, and she was talking about this quality of metta and compassion uh, and all of the other uh, uh, Brahma Viharas. And uh, she, was, she read a much longer quote, but I just, it was amazing because it speaks to this quality of energy, this kind of courage, this persistence, 
So this is what she had to say at the United Nations, and this is after she had been shot and she had recovered enough you know, to be able to, have, uh, to, to speak and to be in front of a group. So she said, Dear sisters and brothers, I'm not against anyone. Neither am I here to speak in terms of personal revenge against the Taliban or any other terrorist group. I am here to speak up for the right of education of every child. I want education for the sons and the daughters of all the extremists, especially the Taliban. I do not even hate the Talib who shot me. Even if there is a gun in my hand and he stands in front of me, I would not shoot him. This is the compassion that I have learnt from Muhammad, the prophet of mercy, Jesus, Jesus Christ, and Lord Buddha. This is the legacy of change that I have inherited from Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Muhammad Ali Jinnah. This is the philosophy of nonviolence that I have learnt from Gandhi, from Bakr Khan, and Mother Teresa. And this is the forgiveness that I have learnt from my mother and father. This is what my soul is telling me. Be peaceful and love everyone. I mean... You feel that, just the weight of that. I mean, the sense of real courage, the sense of persistence. And that's what we're talking about uh, in this quality of, of energy. There's another one that I'm just going to read. This is uh, Nelson Mandela. So this was, um, this was an article that was just, uh, actually it was the obituary, and it was talking about this. And um, again, you'll get this sense of the real persistence So for years, his fame was largely confined to his own country, South Africa. He did not become widely known abroad until his first trial for high treason ended in 1961. Though acquitted, he remained free for little more than a year before going to prison for 27 years and six months, convicted of sabotage and promoting revolution. During this long confinement, more than 17 years of which were spent on Robben Island, a wind-scorched Alcatraz off the Cape Coast. Little was heard of Mr. Mandela, and nothing was seen of him. When he emerged from captivity on February 11, 1990, no contemporary photograph of him had been published since 1964. The world had been able only to wonder what he looked like. He was by then 71 years old, and barely 10 years of semi-active politics remained to him. Nonetheless, more than any other single being, he helped during that decade to secure a conciliatory and mostly peaceful end to apartheid, one of the great abominations of the age, and an infinitely more hopeful start to a democratic South Africa. So again, there's this sense of real persistence, of courage, of perseverance. And this is that aspect of energy. I mean, this is what the potential of energy or this factor, this capacity of mind can do. Um, So once you have energy, you have this real quality of the mind, this capacity that we all have. Um, What is the next factor? Well, the next factor is joy. And so it's said that once you have energy, it'll actually lead into the arising of joy. And joy um, is that quality... uh, that brightens the mind. It's a sense of delight. So the function of joy is to brighten, it's to delight, uh, it's to reveal an extraordinary beauty. So there's that beauty which we tend to see in the, in the outside world, and then there's the beauty that we can actually experience in our own heart and mind, uh, which has a depth to it that is 
uh, beyond, uh, you know, I think we all have some experience of uh, kind of the transitory uh, things in our lives that can be really beautiful, but there can be this inner heart and mind uh, beauty which has a depth to it. And that's what we're talking about when we get into this quality of, of joy, this factor. And uh, so the feel of it, uh, it's, it can actually vary quite a bit. So the feel can be physical, it can actually be mental. Uh, it's often described as uh, tingling or pulsing. Uh, it can be just a feeling of brightness in the mind itself, so that when you close the eyes, it's almost as though there was an inner light, because there's just a real delight in whatever it is uh, that is there. And it's almost as though the mind is taking delight in its own capacity to illuminate, its own capacity to, to know. And it's this amazing quality which... Uh, as it's described, really sort of lights up. Um, so there's uh, just a short little quote that I'll read to you. This is actually from um, uh, Chan Buddhism, which is the Chinese uh, 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 kind of practice that actually Zen uh, comes out of the Chan tradition. And so it describes this quality of uh, this joy or this brightness. And so it's, uh, I'll just read you the quote. In Chan, you fall in love with your breath. You think about the breath while you're sitting, eating, and walking. After you finish your work, you think about the breath. The breath comes to your mind. You want to get close to the breath. There is a tenderness, sweetness, and intimacy that you want to share with the breath. You want to give your time to the breath. You want to give your whole self to the breath. You want to take care of the breath. The breath is very precious. Just as the person you love is precious, you treat the breath with, gen- with gentleness and care. Falling in love gives you energy. It is the same when you fall in love with the breath. You think about the breath when you wake up, you are enthusiastic, you have energy. So there's this real sense of how the mind can take delight in what it's knowing. It has this capacity of knowing, and it can illuminate, and that's this factor uh, of joy. So... The challenge is that those first three factors that I mentioned, so I talked about mindfulness which sets things in motion, and then there was investigation, there was energy, and there was joy. Those are what are called the arousing factors. So those are the factors that actually tend to raise and bring up or brighten, as I was talking about with joy, or to uh, energize, if we're talking about uh, energy, really giving some oomph to it. Uh, or even bringing in some of that real close inspection. So this is the arousal factors. Well, then what happens is that those can get out of balance. So then you need to counterbalance those with what are called the uh, kind of tranquilizing or calming factors. And so that's these next three. That's the next set of these three factors. So after joy, it's as though to continue to progress, you almost need to do a downshift. You need to go sort of take the flood or fluctuation of energy and the rush of the joy where there's this real high that you can get from the brightness in the mind or even the lightness of the body itself. And you need to slow it down just a little bit so that you can actually start to access a deeper level so that you're going from something that is very gross to something that's more subtle. And it's that shift of tranquility that allows you to go to the subtle. So you can uh, think of the function of tranquility or calm as though it's sort of smoothing out coarseness. It's as though the function of it is to sort of 
smooth it out and bring you down into this deeper level, this deeper state. It's As I was describing before, it's sort of like you're shifting a gear in the car. It's almost like you went from first to second. And the, uh, the feel of this, so speaking really from uh, the heart quality, uh, it can show up as peace, uh, as stillness. It can feel as though it's almost like a balm or an ointment that you're putting on, where there's just a soothing quality to it. It's almost as though when you experience this, this sense of calm, you open to this, uh, this, this state that may first feel foreign. It's almost as though, well, I'm not quite sure I know what this is. And, and if we don't allow ourselves to actually recognize it and to spend some time with it, then we um, can actually miss it, that that's what's in the mind. There's this sense of real soothing, of calm, uh, of almost, like I said, a balm. It's a stillness and a peace. Um, and so I, I, you know, we all have, I don't want to um, kind of leave you with this idea that this is some sort of extraordinary thing that you can only accomplish in you know, uh, months and months of silent retreat. It's not. It's something that I think everyone in this room has some appreciation for, which is just think about when you're uh, in meditation, whether it's you know, in the morning or even just tonight, where you had that sense of sitting And then the sitting was over, and yet something carried over into the next moment. And there was a sense of something that carried in and persisted for a while. And notice that, because that what is showing up right there is that sense of calm, of tranquility, of soothing. It can show up, because if we didn't have it, why would we meditate? I mean, you know, it's sort of like if there wasn't this uh, stilling or this calming that shows up, then we wouldn't really meditate. I mean, because there is, we can actually feel this and we can start to appreciate and recognize it. So from this place, this downshift, if you will, from joy to tranquility, the next factor that shows up is concentration. And so this is one um, that uh, I think uh, often uh, there can be some confusion about in meditation. There can be this idea that concentration is as though I'm taking the mind and I'm putting it on a one-pointed thing and I'm just keeping it right there and it better not move because if it does, I'm not concentrated. And there's this real kind of rigidity around it. And that's not what this is. Concentration as a capacity of the mind is really just a gathering, a collecting. And so... Uh, that's its function. Its function is to gather, it's to compose, it's to unify. So it's bringing together, but it's doing it on that deeper level because you've downshifted with the calm, so you're now on a different level and you're bringing it together and unifying the attention so that the feeling of this, the heart quality of it, is a sense of oneness, a sense of connection, of cohesiveness, of harmony. And again, I don't think this is something that's extremely foreign. You can have these experiences, particularly out in nature. I mean, if you're out in nature and you see a gorgeous sunset or you see you're standing and looking out at the waves or whatever it is, you can have just this opening where you just all of a sudden go, wow, this is a perfect moment. I feel connected. I feel at one with nature, with the environment. And that's what this capacity of mind is. And that's what uh, we're talking about when the mind kind of comes together and it unifies in a way that there's a sense of oneness, a sense of connection. And 
when the mind does this, this is a really interesting place because it'll stay with experiences. So habitually what will happen is that the mind will move away or the attention will move away. It'll just, it'll go off, you know, in meditation to thought, whatever. I mean, you know, we all have this experience. But when actually there is this coming together, this gathering, there's less movement. It just sort of stays there. And it's almost, it's paradoxical. It's almost like you don't have to exert much effort because it's as though the mind has collected it itself enough that there's just a, uh, a momentum. It's almost like it's feeding itself and continuing to keep it there. And so that's where we can have this sense of just kind of presence that lingers for a long time. And we can feel that sense of connection. And um, from this place of kind of gathered attention, this feeling of connection or of harmony, of cohesiveness, we move into the last factor. And the last factor is equanimity. And so the function of equanimity uh, is to balance. So it's just, you know, this sense of, uh, of being equanimous. Uh, its function is also to steady. So it's to steady also with the very coarse and the very subtle. So those aspects of our experience that are very, very subtle. It also helps to steady the mind. And lastly, it unentangles. So there's this ability of it to actually start to um, kind of unravel any tension that might be left in the mind. And so when uh, there's the equanimity of it, the feeling of it uh, is the sense of abiding. It's almost as though, um, uh, it's almost like um, in uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, there's this thing called a mountain meditation. And the mountain meditation is where you visualize yourself resting as the mountain. And the mountain is just there. And all of these things come and go over the mountain. Weather patterns, there's change of seasons, there's animals, there's all this activity that happens on the mountain. And the mountain receives it all. It's there abiding with whatever is happening. And so this sense of abiding is, there's a warmth to it. It's not actually this sort of detached, okay, I'm just going to be back here and you know, quantumists, and okay, I'm not going to let that affect me. You know, you're right there, just like the mountain. You're receiving it right there, moment to moment. And so that's this quality of equanimity. It's this abiding. Um, and it's also that uh, it can be uh, a, a feeling of real deep peace. It's just sort of like you, you just have this sense of it's all okay. I can relate to this in a way where my heart can just... Be with it. That's that quality or that feeling of peace. So there's a, a quote that um, I'll just kind of help with the heart quality of this. It's a little bit long, so just bear with me. Uh, this comes from um, a very well-known meditation master. He was a Thai meditation master. Uh, his name was Ajahn Chah. Many of you have probably heard of him. Um, and this is a, a quote um, that for me, really kind of talks about this opening of equanimity, which is this last awakening factor. And so uh, I'll just add a little footnote. Ajahn Chah also had this other honorific title, which was called a Luang Por. So Luang Por Chah is an honorific title for a very accomplished master. So Luang Por Chah continued on his wanderings, looking 
for peaceful places to practice until one day he reached Ban Kok Giao, excuse me for my tie because that may be a little off, uh, where he came across a deserted monastery about half a kilometer from the edge of the hamlet. His mind felt light and tranquil. It was as if there was a kind of gathering of forces. One night there was a festival on in the village. Sometime after 11 o'clock, while I was walking, I began to feel rather strange. In fact, this feeling, an unusual kind of calmness and ease, had first appeared during the day. When I became wary from walking, I went into the small grass-roofed hut to sit and was taken by surprise. Suddenly my mind desired tranquility, so intensely that I could hardly cross my legs quickly enough. It just happened by itself. Almost immediately the mind did indeed become peaceful. It felt firm and stable. It wasn't that I couldn't hear the sounds of merrymaking in the village. I could still hear them. But if I wished to, I could not hear them. It was strange. When I paid no attention to the sounds, there was silence. If I wanted to hear them, I could, and felt no irritation. Within my mind, it was as if there were two objects standing there together, but with no connection between them. I saw the mind and its sense object established in different areas, like a kettle and a spittoon placed by a monk's seat. I realized that if concentration is still weak, you hear sounds, but when the mind is empty, then it's silent. If a sound arises and you look at the awareness of it, you see that the awareness is separate from the sound. I reflected, well, how else could it be? That's just the way it is. They're unconnected. I kept considering this point until I realized, ah, this is important. When continuity between things is broken, when there is peace, or when continuity is broken, then there is peace. So this is this kind of opening to equanimity. It's that quality that untangles and that pervasion of peace coming into the mind. And I love that because he talks about it. It's like, well, there's this odd experience of sort of like there was all this noise and merrymaking which could have gotten really agitated and upset, but then yet there was this other quality of mind that was okay with it. And it was just there. And it solved the distinction so that there was the Great natural peace, as it's sometimes talked about, is there. It's existing. It's the capacity of the mind. And then when we get into equanimity, this is what we're talking about. So at this point where you have that balance, that steadiness, you have the abiding quality, the feeling of abiding, this is said to be the moment of awakening itself. And this is where um, I'm going to stop because I think this is one of the most interesting pieces, but I'm going to end it with two quotes that point at this, that talk about this. And in particular, I'm going to end with a quote from um, a female meditation master. This is really important. She was a lay woman practitioner, and she has a wonderful uh, set of teachings called An Unentangled Knowing. Uh, and her name was Upasakaki, and she... Um, it was a very accomplished uh, meditation master, and she was a lay practitioner. So just like us, she was uh, a lay person. Um, but before I read that quote, I want to just uh, give you um, kind of more of the, uh, the, the wisdom side of it, which is uh, this is the summary of how the factors work together. Okay, So this is just kind of the cliff notes of everything I was going through. Um, and this comes from uh, the Venerable Nalio, who is an incredible scholar, uh, and is ta- he's talking about these seven factors of awakening. And he says, 
So he's talking about mindfulness as being the foundation, and then from mindfulness we move into investigation. So the development of investigation in turn arouses the awakening factor of energy. The arising of such energy is related to putting forth effort. The discourses further qualify such energy with the attribute unshaken. Oh, wait, this is the wrong quote. Excuse me. That's not the one I wanted. Let me go to the next one. This is, this is it. Um, here we go. So practically applied, the whole set of the seven awakening factors can be understood to describe the progress of Satipatthana, or the progress of the foundations of mindfulness practice. On the basis of well-established mindfulness, so that's the first factor, one investigates the nature of subjective reality. That is, we start to investigate. We start to look at deeper truths about reality. Once sustained investigation gains momentum, that is, energy, with growing insight, the object of contemplation becomes clearer and the meditator feels inspired. That sense of joy, that sense of delight shows up. To continue with practice. So there's the joy to continue with practice. If at this point the danger of getting carried away by elation and agitation can be avoided, so there's that tendency for the arousing factors to almost get us too excited, too revved up. Um, Continued contemplation leads to a state of calmness. When the mind stays effortlessly with its meditation object, without succumbing to distraction, that is, concentration. There's the gathering of the mind. With maturing insight, this process culminates in a state of firm equanimity and detachment. It is at this point when the inspired momentum of mindful investigation takes place against a background of tranquil composure that the mental equipose needed for the breakthrough to awakening comes about. At this level of practice, a deep sense of complete letting go prevails. So that's a a very technical walking through the seven factors, but it's a way of summarizing them. And uh, he does a beautiful job of kind of describing how you move through those seven factors. So I want to end with the heart quality piece of it, which is the quote from uh, this lay um, uh, female meditation master. And this is what she had to say. And I want to just, you're going to have to listen and do a little bit of mental translation here because she doesn't lay them out as you know, explicitly as Analeo does, as these seven factors in the way they progress. But just listen and see if you can hear these different things that that I've been talking about. When we practice, we're like diamond cutters. Our diamond, the mind, is embedded in dense, dark defilements. We have to use mindfulness and discernment, or virtue, concentration, and discernment, as our cutting tools to make the mind pure in all its thoughts, words, and deeds. Then we train the mind to grow still and to contemplate so as to give rise to clear knowledge all the way to the point where you meet with what's totally pure and free from defilements and mental affluence. Our Mrs. Emptiness, who is so extremely beautiful, free from change, whom the king of death can't see. And as to whether this is something worth aspiring to, I leave it up to you to decide. Thank you for your kind attention. And um, at this point, really um, just want to open it up um, to any comments, reflections, questions. And really, this is the time for the benefit of community, for us to be able to be together and to share in a very dynamic way.
two quick questions. Um, the first quick question is, where did the seven factors come from originally? Yeah, so are you talking about where they found within... Yeah, I mean, is it in some Buddhist teaching in a particular text or some Sanskrit teaching, or where did it actually come from? Yes, so uh, the, the short answer uh, about where these come from, um, they're actually talked about in a couple of different ways. They're referenced in many places in the original Buddhist sutta. So in the, the discourses that are said to be the original words, that's where you'll find them. And they're talked about in a couple of different ways. They're sometimes talked about as the seven treasures, which are said to be only known once there is a fully awakened being in the world that says, here are the seven things that are wholesome, that when you cultivate them, they lead to awakening. And they're said to be these capacities in the mind. So that's the one way that they're talked about. The other way that they're talked about is uh, in uh, the Satipatthana Sutta itself, which is... Uh, the text, it's actually this one, uh, it's called The Direct Path to Realization. It's the discourse on mindfulness. So it's all the bits about mindfulness. There's a whole section in the fourth foundation that talks about these seven factors and how you kind of go through them. The second question is this. Why not just mash together tranquility and equanimity and then you leave some room for compassion, which I didn't hear compassion <laughs> yes. is one of the seven factors. And I, I saw really between tranquility, um, which is a little more passive than equanimity, which you know seems to involve a little more effort. Yeah. Compassion appeared to be missing. I realize you can always read it as a subtext right. for any of the you know, joy or anything else. But so what's the logic? It's a great question, and I don't I don't know that I can totally answer the question. So I think. Keep the question itself, because I think it's a wonderful question. The, the bit that I may be able to offer that might be helpful uh, <coughs> is that um, actually it is talked about in practice about actually kind of mashing some of these together. So there is, um, uh, there is this idea that you can think about them just as kind of arousing or energizing factors and as more kind of calming factors. And they're used as a way to kind of calibrate what is happening in the heart and mind so that you can check. You can say, okay, so is mindfulness here? Am I here? Yep, I'm here. Is there some energy? Do I have some engagement with what's actually happening? Oh, yeah. So that, you've just covered kind of the three factors that are the, you know, the interest, the energy, and the joy. You've just done that by saying, is there energy here? And so it's a shorthand. And then the calming factors, you kind of mash them all together, and you can see, ooh, am I getting a little bit too kind of like, uh, there's too much energy in the system, I need to just bring it down a little bit. And so you mash those last calming factors together, and you just say, well, how is the concentration? How is it? Is there enough collectedness of mind, or is it too kind of, you know, energetic and, and kind of scattered? So you can actually mash them together and use them as a shorthand and just say, is there mindfulness? Is there energy? And how's my concentration? And are they in rough balance? So you can do that. And then the qualities that um, you were talking about with the compassion, and um, those are said to be the limitless qualities, that those have no limit. They're the, the ones without. So you can develop them indefinitely. And you're absolutely right that they actually have, um, you know, it's sort of like, well, why doesn't it show up in the list, and why isn't it there? But uh, there's... Um, the way that this is framed in, within the Buddhist teaching is that these are said to be the short list for the necessary conditioning for the mind's realization of its own freedom. 
And so that that's 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 how they're described. And you know, you can kind of say, okay, yeah, but I like compassion, so I actually want to do some compassion practice. And that's great, because that's another form of cultivation, right? You can cultivate compassion. You can cultivate sympathetic joy. I think I've heard sometimes that that uh, the, the mashing of the energizing and from the trend, the, the, the balance is, is sort of a mindfulness. It's kind of a balance point between the two. And I wonder if you have some uh, just practical suggestions for how in day-to-day life uh, mindfulness can help us do that kind of um, right view, staying on path and, and helping to kind of check in with the balance and, and where some adjustment might be needed. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a wonderful question as well. Um, and I'll kind of share something from my own experience, which may or may not be helpful. So you can kind of take it or leave it as you see fit. Um, the way um, that I kind of use it in daily life is um, first to just, uh, as you said, kind of mindfulness is that quality that monitors, right? That quality that has the capacity to check other things. So the very first thing that I'll do is just um, kind of wonder, okay, am I actually here, right? So just a very simple question. Am I remembering the present moment? Am I remembering myself? And then I can do that. And that usually just will drop me back into a more mindful frame of being here and actually being in the moment. And then the, um, the energizing or uh, the calming factors, uh, one way to use the... Uh, energizing factors in daily life that I used to use uh, quite often is just to drop in a question periodically. And it can, and you can find your own question. So um, there can be a way in which we're mindful and yet we're not fully connected with uh, what that experience is. So it could be we're seeing somebody that we have a particular, you know, a lot of charge or difficulty with and we just kind of say, I know this person, right? Like, I'm here, I'm in the present moment, they're right in front of me, but no, no, I, I know this person. And so you can just drop in a simple phrase almost like, who? And then all of a sudden it's sort of like, well, who, what? It doesn't make any sense. But you just drop in a question, and that engages the curiosity like that. It's just, and there's uh, Sayadaw Utejaniya, who's a wonderful teacher, talks about the way you drop in these questions, and you just kind of throw in a question, or what now? And then it goes, well, I don't know, what is what now? And then that brings in this sense of brightness. Uh, and then for just uh, the more calming or the tranquilizing uh, factors, there can be um, just a sense of, uh, in daily life, where um, you can watch the mind spinning. It just spins, right? So there's this almost like you're lost in this concatenation of thought or emotion or whatever is happening. And so that's where you can start to say, okay... You know, if the mindfulness can come in and go, what is happening here? There's this this chain of stuff that's spinning around. And so is there some way that I can start to bring in a little bit more just kind of coming into the body? So, uh, you know, the classic uh, way that I used to do it was just finding some way that I could actually fully come into something that was grounded. So it could even just be like, you know, lying down for just a moment because then I'm totally 
there and it brings the energy level down. It could just taking a walk kind of allow some of that energy to dissipate. But the key for it to look in daily life is when there's just that spinning of the mind or the heart around emotions and thoughts. And so that's the indicator, okay, can I do something, whether it's physical activity or lying down or something that gets me kind of more grounded um, to bring out some energy. So that's just a couple thoughts, but I hope they're helpful. You just used a wonderful word that I've never heard before. Okay. Okay. What was it? Oh, concatenation? Yeah. Yeah. The spinning? Well, it's just sort of the ch 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 That's a great question, and I may ask the group if there are other thoughts about that one. But I, my sense is, um, my own felt experience of it is that um, there is a natural speed limit, and this actually uh, comes from, I think I've, I've shared this before, but uh, Tsongmi Rinpoche talks about this, he's in the Tibetan tradition, but he talks about it as the speed limit of the body. And so the mind, because it's, it's not in physical location, it's not like the body where it's here, has the ability to actually move so quick and it can drive and push other aspects of our experience. And so what happens is that when we push beyond kind of what is the biological set point for ourselves where, you know, our body is uh, constantly giving us feedback and signals and saying, slow down. Why are you moving so fast? Like this is—it's stressful. I can feel it. We can get tense. We can have all these things that we can even have, you know, dis-ease that shows up uh, in the body. And so, um, I, part of what I see is some of the big challenges in our uh, society today is that we are living so much in that untethered space. It's that untethered area of the mind that isn't actually embodied. We're not actually feeling the emotions, we're not with kind of the, um, with the heart and we're not with the nervous system of the body. And if we were with the heart and the nervous system, then we would notice how much we've exceeded the speed limit and how much we're actually, you know, causing all of this um, harm to ourselves. So that's, just, that's just my two cents for whatever it's worth. Your description of establishing mindfulness... So I emphasized the very general receptive component to it. You used the word tenderness and yeah. emphasized the heart-mind uh, aspect. But for some people, teach mind mindfulness in a much more active way. Um, probably the most extreme example would be the Mahasa House School. Yes. Where they literally talk about using your awareness to rush toward the object and capture the object. Very active um, descriptions like that. Yes. And then lots of people in between. Um, what are your thoughts? Why, why is there such a range that's developed over time? Um, all of these are not to be useful to some degree they would have died out. Right. Um, but be interested in your, your thoughts on that. Okay. So can I start with a question back to you? Sure. Okay. Um, which is, so... What's your own intuitive sense of that? So what, when you, with that spectrum that you just described, and there is a spectrum, what, what is your, um, 
where what's the intuition around that? And then I'll I'll offer whatever two cents I have. But well, the best description I've heard, um, I'll I'll give Joseph credit, came from Joseph Goldstein, as it depends. It depends on your situation mm. that you're in. Mm. Um, maybe if you're a very sort of on the dull side in your practice at the moment, the more active can be a very skillful thing to do. Yes. And if you're a little too overactive, the more receptive thing can be a skillful thing to do. Yes. Um, so, that, and that seems to make sense to me. Yeah. But I'm still very much exploring and very active. So, any way you can. Elaborate with you. Sure. Um, so I think your answer is a beautiful one, which is, um, and you can actually tie back to what we were just talking about, because I think that's that's the way that um, Joseph often talks about it, which is um, my experience is that within our kind of culture and within our society today, we are so programmed and conditioned in that more active energy that we're so good at striving, at accomplishing, at task oriented, at uh, a to-do list, at uh, all these infinite, you know, kind of uh, goal setting, that what I tend to do is I emphasize much more of the receptive quality because I feel like there's already enough uh, kind of conditioning and education on that active piece. And so when it, somebody asks about it, then it's a natural kind of, you know, moving into that. But I tend to counterbalance and emphasize a little bit more on the receptive quality just because of the where the time and place and circumstances and where we find ourselves these days. Um, but the Joseph's description is a beautiful one because um, the movement between an active and very kind of go out there and you know investigate and get right into the object with the mindfulness and switching to that more receptive, open, tender actually creates energy. So it moves from that's one way of creating energy, which is the, uh, one of the factors of awakening, is actually to move on that spectrum. And the movement itself, just like exercise, is what creates some energy. So that's a very skillful means if you're finding that the energy factor, the capacity of mind that is needs a little bit more waking up, then you can play in that area. I want to play the devil's advocate here for a moment. Please. And if... If somebody achieves a deep state of peace and the the assumption is that that creates energy, I have a problem with that because it tends to destroy energy. And I find that if I get rid of the monkey mind and I get into a peaceful state of mind, I'm inclined to do nothing at all. Mm. And and that's the way I want it. I'm tired of this rat race, you know, this high energy stuff and the way that we live in this country. It just seems to take over us. Mm. And I, I, I'm aware of a very deep desire to rest. And maybe in an unhealthy way, too, because things do have to get done sometimes. But it seems like if you get into that peaceful frame of mind, that energy dissipates. Mm. I don't need to do anything more because now I'm relaxed. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And so I kind of get into a uh, a funny paradox there. Mm. So can I ask you a question? Sure. So um, help me understand where where the question is coming from. So what what is it that's making you ask that particular question? Is it? You're, I mean, I heard that you're saying you're playing the devil's advocate, but where? 
why? I mean, wh- where is that showing up in your own experience? Well, and I've asked it in here before okay. with a different audience and a different instructor. Sure. Um, that there seems to be this hypothesis that if people achieve a state of peace, they will become this. They will become this do-gooder in the world, and they have all these goals and all that. And it seems the opposite to me. Mm. And it's, I'm struggling in my mind philosophically as to how to reconcile these two. Mm. I don't know if I'm making myself clear here, but uh, well, let me let me try just reflecting back what I heard, and then you tell me if I'm missing something. Um, so what I'm hearing is that um, there is. Um, an assumption that uh, when um, you become peaceful, that naturally leads to kind of a, a being a, an activist or a do-gooder in the world out there doing that. That's not my hypothesis. That's the hypothesis you've heard. That's the hypothesis I've been getting from the Got books it. that I read. Got it. That, that this is maybe a, a postulation that doesn't always hold true. Mm. Yes. And um, and then the second question, uh, or the kind of what I heard also in there was that um, your own sense of it is almost just sort of the peace itself of just the relaxing uh, is something that I mean you're aspiring towards just that sense of absolutely yeah. yes a lack of this conflict is what I'm seeking yes maybe I can't have it you know. <laughs> But I'm struggling. Yeah. Um, It's a beautiful question. And I think what you're doing is critical, which is that you're hearing something and you're not just accepting it. So you're you're hearing, you know, whatever it is from a book or other teachers, me or whoever else is sitting up there, and you're going, "Mm, I don't know if that actually comports with my experience. I don't know if that's true for me. I don't know if that's actually what I'm aspiring towards. And then what you're doing is you're actually, you're starting to question it, right? You're, you're, at, you're starting to ask, you're looking into it. And that, um, I just want to kind of acknowledge or recognize that that is, that's really important because what it's doing is you're actually working with it directly yourself and you're not kind of taking something external. And that is critical to practice itself because there's, that's an integration piece for it. And so the assumption that if you become peaceful that you therefore you know, are or need to be an activist uh, out in the world, um, that's just a view. I mean, that's all that is. Some and people choose to do it. Some people chose to do it, and there are others, and actually there are stories of these amazing uh, you know, meditation uh, masters that never left a cave. And they stayed in there the whole time, and they were never out in the world, and they just developed these qualities of the heart and mind because their motivation or what they were aspiring to, their own aspiration, was different than the sort of more active engaged. And so it, you're absolutely right, which is listening to your own truth, listening to your own Well, it's like dissatisfaction is a great motivator. People always, because they always want something yes. else, or some, somehow they want it to be different. Yes. But then if things are just the way you want them to be, then it all falls away. And I guess in a, in a sense, that on the rare occasions when I've been, been able to really get into a deeply peaceful state of mind, and I have this feeling that, you know, I'm done, I'm not going to do another thing, it's frightening. Mm. 
So mm. I have that. Yes. So I get what I want, and then it frightens me. Yes. So there's no way out of this thing, you know. And so you've got a feeling that, that you just have to work with this energy floating around, and that's maybe the deepest peace I have, is when I'm a witness to all these hurricanes yes. going on, and I just have to bear witness to them. Mm. So there's a piece that I heard, though, where you described you have a moment of peace, and then there's the arising of right. the fear, right? right? It just moves on to something else. Right, right. And so, in terms of this, what I was sharing tonight, one thing that you could play with, it's just, it, I offer it as a, you know, you can take it or leave it if it's useful, but is to see if you can actually start to tune into, as small as it might be, that sense of peace, that sense, even if it's fleeting or momentary, and then as it's described in here, this this way of cultivating it is just to drop in a resolve. It's almost like you drop in a suggestion where you just say, may this peace increase, may it grow, may it uh, continue to arise, and then let it go, and just see what happens. And then it's just like I have to the greatest peace is in, it, is in accepting all these unpeaceful things that are part of life, and that's maybe the best thing to do, is to, you can't shut them off. They're going to be there. That's what I get out of my practice. There's no, you're, there's no hope of shutting it all out. You just have to live with it. And you can also deliberately cultivate peace when it's there. So, yes, there is the kind of swirl and, and all of that. But when there is that moment when peace comes in and you see it and you recognize it and you see its quality and you feel it, that it's different, recognize that. Because when you recognize it and you bring the attention to it, it actually grows. It can. I won't say it will. But just the noticing it and the recognizing it gives it the potential to then grow. And you can actually enjoy that. You can enjoy the peace and actually spend time enjoying it. And then, you know, the, the whirlwind will come back on its own. But there can be, and that's what some of this is, is some of, some of these seven factors is really talking about how to, um, it's kind of, it's like a flip. It's like normally we talk about the suffering side or all the things that are wrong or the negative. And when we're talking about these awakening factors, there's a real pleasantness in them that we can actually hang out for a while. And it can be a support. It can nourish us in, in our practice. So, um, yeah, but it's a, it's a great question that you're asking, is to keep questioning. Yeah, thank you. Yes? Thank you. I have a question. I'll see if it's about being a question. Sure. Um, I just wanted to say how much I appreciated you bringing in the heart factors, you know, just that balance. And... I think there are times when I think I should be an activist, like, you know, get out there and do that kind of thing. And I find that when I go, when I have those experiences of peace, what really happens is just a natural generosity comes. And then I get to express that natural generosity in ways that, um, that feel really good to me, that are natural to me. And then, and then it might be that it's like, oh, but then go do this, and, and it's like, no, actually, it's just, how about if I just go out and smile at people, mm. you know, whatever, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And 
nice to have, have more of that. And so then it's just not really craving when, when it shows up. Mm. And that, of course, is an ongoing challenge. Mm. Thank you. But what you shared is beautiful. Just that natural, emergent peace. And there's nothing really that I have to add to that because you're experiencing it. And that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's when I just have, just am really in alignment with what the next step is, with what's, what's skillful action or non-action. Yeah. from that place. Thank you. So I'm aware of time. Um, let's uh, just let the words go, and let's just settle for just a second. And if it feels okay, then go ahead and um, uh, close the eyes. Uh, if you prefer to keep the eyes open, then just a soft gaze. But just see if you can once again kind of cultivate the mindfulness. You're coming into the present moment again. You're here in this room with all of these people. We're gathered in community. And so let's just end by really sending out an aspiration or a wish. And it's just sort of this, uh, our own goodwill, uh, benevolence, our well-wishing. So may our practice here tonight, our time together, our sharing, be for our own benefit, as well as the benefit of all beings without exception. And just allow yourself to, as much as is possible, have a sense of just radiating that out, and including yourself in it, your own benefit and the benefit of all beings without exception. for your heartwarming talk. It's the tradition in uh, Buddhist centers to um, offer dana if you choose to. Dana is a Pali word that means generosity. Um, and if you give tonight, 60% would go to Alex, the, or the resident, or the visiting teacher, and then 40% stays here to uh, sustain this building and keep it uh, alive and offering programs like this. So again, you can remember that you can um, visit Alex at his own um, place, which is Yoga Soul, I believe. It's in northeast. Northeast Minneapolis. And there's a sign-up outside if you want news about that. It's just on the little table. And maybe the last thing I'll say is that it's hard in this format to have more of the kind of interactive community feel because I'm sitting up here and everyone's kind of sitting out there. So if you want to stay after for tea and um, I think... Uh, you know, just in the community room, that's lovely because that's an opportunity for more informal community building and sharing. But thank you so this much talk, for being like here. like all thank programs at Common practice. Ground, is offered freely stuff. in the spirit of generosity. Your attention. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.